Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Bixler. Uh, I am currently a teacher at EMHS and have, am working on a PhD in Hebrew Bible at Drew Theological School. Our family's been attending Parkview for about two years, and I was asked this morning to share some reflections on the book of Isaiah. Um, as someone who studies the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, I often find that Christians assume that the biblical prophets in the Hebrew Bible exist primarily to offer predictions of the future, and specifically predictions about Jesus. Our current sermon series does that in its own way by looking at Isaiah as a fifth gospel, as being about Jesus. And yes, I appreciate the ways that the gospel writers draw heavily from Isaiah, looking back and finding resonance with the person of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. But I also feel a bit compelled to point out that the biblical prophets, in addition to offering hope for the future, also look backwards, calling the Hebrew people to remember who they are, where they've come from, and reminding them of the requirements of the covenant that was made with the Lord and laid out in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. This passage from Isaiah, part of a longer section known as Third Isaiah, represents this impulse of the biblical prophets to look backwards quite well. So today, I want to begin by dwelling deeply in our passage from Isaiah before looking briefly at how the Gospel of Luke uses these words from Isaiah chapters 61 and 58. This section of Isaiah is deeply embedded in the traditions of the Hebrew people and is also keenly aware of the conflicts and debates of its own time and place. These dynamics add additional meaning to the text we have in front of us. So let's explore a bit about what it means to bring good news to the oppressed. My reflections center primarily on two questions today. What is this good news? And who is this good news for? As Pastor Phil mentioned last week in his sermon, scholars see Isaiah as composed in three distinct sections. Chapters 1 to 39 are usually attributed to the prophet Isaiah, who was active in Jerusalem during the times of King Ahaz and Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, during the time that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire around 722 BCE. The northern kingdom ceases to exist, getting absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. Isaiah offers a call to the people of Jerusalem and Judah to return to the Lord in order to prevent the same fate that befell the northern kingdom. Isaiah's disciples then continue to preach his message for centuries, adapting it to new time periods. Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, known as 2nd Isaiah, focuses on the end of the Babylonian Empire around the year 539 BCE, which had deported many of the Judeans to Babylon approximately 50 years earlier in 587 BCE. These chapters are focused on the hope of a, of a return to Jerusalem and Judah and contain messages of comfort, like our passage last week from chapter 40. The final chapters of the book Isaiah then, chapters 56 to 66, likely address, the, likely address the actual return of the people from exile sometime after 539 during the Persian Empire and is set in the, um, in the region of Judah and Jerusalem. This context includes the resettlement of the land and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The return from exile is detailed in the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah and begins what is known as the second temple time period in Jewish history. This era represented a significant shift in Jewish self-understanding and was marked by debates and conflicts over the Jewish people's identity. 
this final section of Isaiah, which I'll refer to as Third Isaiah, addresses some of these concerns and offers a vision for who God's people should be in their context. This historical setting matters for a number of reasons, the first of which is to understand how the prophet is making use of the Torah, or the law, in order to announce their prophetic message. Chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, contain the most familiar part of our passage today, the one that Luke reuses in his gospel. The, the Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, third Isaiah is incorporating the idea of jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favor, from Leviticus chapter 25. Jubilee is a provision in the law that the land will be returned to its original owners every 50 years, so that if someone needed to sell their land, they were able to gain it back and have economic prosperity again. It was a system that allowed for the remission of debts and prevented wealth inequality. Now, Isaiah here is applying this idea and practice of Jubilee to the people as a whole. They have been in Babylon for approximately 50 years and are now able to return to the land that they once had inhabited. It is their ancestral land, given to them based on the tribal allotment in the book of Joshua. In a way here, third Isaiah sees that the Lord has forgiven their debts, their unfaithfulness that led to the exile. They are able to start anew. The prophet also offers hope in this promise of a new start of Jubilee. When the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah, the land was likely in ruins. The cities destroyed, the fields burned, Jerusalem uninhabitable, and the temple that Solomon built that housed God's presence demolished. Now, however, Third Isaiah offers hope in a reversal of things, comfort for mourning, gladness instead of mourning. In verse 4, the prophet writes that the people will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore formerly deserted places, renew ruined cities. The prospect of a return to the promised land and a rebuilt and glorified Jerusalem is a significant message of hope. It is the promise of God's faithfulness. And here, Third Isaiah grounds that hope in the biblical law of Jubilee, deeply embedding this understanding for the nation um, by placing them in the position of the poor and those who need liberation. So, that's part of the message of what this good news is, but who is it that's hearing this message? Who exactly were the people who 50 years ago had been deported to Babylon and have now returned to Jerusalem hoping to have their land given back to them? For this, we need to flip back to the book of 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25, which details the Babylonian conquest and deportation. Here, it is clear that these people were largely from the upper classes of society. Those who were deported to Babylon included officials, warriors, artisans, and smiths. The only people left behind were the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers and tillers of the soil. The same tasks that are given to foreigners that we read about in Isaiah 61.5. So yes, the people returning during the time of 3rd Isaiah had been exiled to Babylon for 50 years and were oppressed on some level. But they or their parents or maybe their grandparents were people of importance in Jerusalem and Judah before the exile. They may have heard stories in Babylon about how good things used to be in Jerusalem because their families were the ones in charge. 
Are they returning with an expectation that they will once again be people of importance? Do they imagine that they have more right to the promised land than the people who have been living there caring for the land these past 50 years? Do they run the risk of oppressing those people just as they were once oppressed in Babylon? I believe that third Isaiah sees this as a possibility because even as the prophet offers hope in verses 1 to 7, a reminder to do justice immediately follows. The prophet makes it clear by the structure of verse 8. This new section begins with the paired couplet. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. Paired with, I will faithfully give them their wage and make with them an everlasting covenant. The them here refers to the foreigners who will till their land and dress their vines. But, and I'll, and I'll return to that in just a little bit about how foreigners will be entered into the covenant. But first I want to point out that it's a reminder to the people of Israel that they are a covenant people. It's a reminder of who they are. There is wage or reward for upholding their side of the covenant, for following the law and pursuing this justice that the Lord loves. And it's also maybe an implicit warning and a reminder that failure to uphold the covenant is part of what led to exile in the first place in Isaiah's mind. Third Isaiah seems to understand that the people who have returned need to hear this and so uses this reminder of what God requires to not replicate the systems of oppression from which they just came, that there is a danger that they might turn from oppressed people into oppressors rather quickly. This is the context of the good news that is proclaimed in Isaiah 61.1, the good news to the oppressed that binds up the brokenhearted and proclaims release and liberation. It is only good news if the justice that God loves is part of that good news. James Cone, a theologian who writes about black liberation, makes this point explicitly in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where he writes that, quote, good news for the oppressed is not good news for the powerful, for those who are comfortable with the way things are, or for anyone whose understanding of religion is aligned with power, end quote. And this is the thing about the good news we see in Isaiah as well. It needs to be good news for the oppressed. It must contain justice for the oppressed, or it simply isn't good news. The Lord's justice and good news are unsettling for those who hold power, those who enjoy the privileges of the status quo in society. So as 3rd Isaiah reminds these people who are returning, who used to be in positions of power, that they are in an everlasting covenant with the Lord and must do justice, what exactly do the contours of this justice of the Lord, that the Lord loves look like? What is this good news? One of the ways to understand this is to turn again to the historical context in which 3rd Isaiah is writing. I mentioned earlier that the events of the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the city and the temple are narrated in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. One of the things that these books reveal is that there is a real tension as the Hebrew people determine who they are. The conflict plays out with Ezra and Nehemiah addressing how to interact with those persons who are still living in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. These are the same poorest people of the land who were left behind during exile as agricultural workers. Ezra and Nehemiah refer to them as the peoples of the land, which sometimes gets translated as neighboring peoples, depending on your translation. Ezra chapters 9 and 10 and Nehemiah chapter 13 narrate this crisis that emerges in the community over marriage to women from this group that remained in the land. 
Ezra and Nehemiah advocate for a pure Israel, one that follows the law rigorously, even goes going so far as to require those Hebrew men who have married these foreign women to send their wives and children away, making them orphans and widows. They make it clear that influence from foreigners and from the people of the land is a problem for maintaining Jewish identity. They enforce their vision with violence, and their books tell how they force their will upon the people. So what does this have to do with 3rd Isaiah? Well, chapter 56, the first chapter that is associated with the writing from this time period of the resettlement of Jerusalem, gives the clearest vision of what 3rd Isaiah's good news is. It is an expansive view of the Lord's inclusion. Foreigners are welcomed into the family of the Lord, alongside eunuchs, men who have been castrated. This stands in contradiction to some of the legal material that Ezra and Nehemiah would have used regarding who was allowed into, to participate in worship of the Lord. Foreigners and eunuchs are specifically excluded. Yet here we have the prophet, 3rd Isaiah, who follows in the tradition of Isaiah, declaring that no, foreigners and eunuchs who are faithful to the Lord may join the community. This is a direct rebuttal to the work of Ezra and Nehemiah. It appears again in 61.8, when foreigners are included in the covenant in Isaiah's vision of hope. This is good news for the oppressed. It is good news because it opens the doors for those who have previously been excluded from the community. It is good news because there is now a place for those who have been told that they do not belong. Third Isaiah reminds the people that they are a people blessed by the Lord in 61.9. To my ears, Isaiah is echoing the promise to, in Genesis, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. In, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah reminds the people that being blessed is for the purpose of blessing others, opening up the Lord's love to new people. Third Isaiah is weighing in on the, the debates that were happening in their faith community, expressing good news to the oppressed and unsettling those in power. Biblical scholar Patricia Toll notes that Third Isaiah calls throughout its section for social justice and laments the injustice present in the community that has returned from exile. Even though the Hebrew people were oppressed in Babylon and living as foreigners in a strange land, some are now arguing against offering hospitality to the foreigners among them. This is the radical call of Third Isaiah, breaking the cycles of oppression and offering a new vision for the world. As, second, or sorry, as third Isaiah continues in chapter 65, it contains the fulfillment of this hopeful vision where the Lord creates a new heaven and new earth which function in ways that disregard the current ways of being, where oppression no longer exists, with the metaphor of wolf and lamb lying to, feeding together, serving to demonstrate the harmony of this new thing that the Lord is doing. This new covenant sounds a lot like the mountain of God that we sang about earlier in this, in this service. And so with all of that backdrop to Isaiah, notice then how Luke chooses to use this passage from Isaiah chapter 61. Luke frames this story of Jesus reading in the synagogue very intentionally and chooses to tell this story differently than other gospel writers. If you look at Matthew and Mark, they both place this account of Jesus reading in Nazareth much later in their Gospels, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, after Jesus has already begun to do some of his work. Luke instead opens Jesus' public ministry 
with this account of what type of teacher Jesus will be. One who has fulfilled the call of Isaiah and challenges his listeners to return to this expansive inclusion of what Isaiah is offering. Luke makes use of this text from Isaiah to show that Jesus is standing in the line of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, calling persons to remember their past as a chosen people blessed by God. Luke's Jesus reminds his listeners that they are in a covenant relationship with the Lord, a relationship that asks them to uphold God's justice, to proclaim good news that is good news for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. So how does this good news relate to us today? How do you find yourself in relation to Isaiah's message of blessing and being people in covenant with the Lord? Is the good news that we proclaim good news to those who are oppressed? Is it a blessing to others beyond ourselves? We can ask, our question, we can ask ourselves these questions individually. How do those of us who have power and privilege in our society use those benefits to bring good news to the oppressed? How do we seek to enclose those whose God, God cares about the most who may have been excluded from our communities? We can ask these questions in our broader society. Where do we see gaps in access to resources in our local community? How do we respond to larger societal forces, such as the Supreme Court rulings from this past week, or the upcoming celebrations of nationalism and militarism that we'll encounter this week with July 4th? We can ask these questions of our church communities. How do we individually and as a congregation enter into the debates of Virginia Mennonite Conference and Mennonite Church USA during meetings that are happening this month? How do we continue to be God's people within the Mennonite tradition in a way that takes Isaiah's call of radical inclusion seriously? Because that is what Third Isaiah is doing, offering a new understanding of what the Lord's covenant looks like, a revisioning of the way things used to be. Our call to worship today named it as a new covenant. Chapter 61 concludes with the metaphor of gardens producing abundance to represent this new covenant in the ways it will produce righteousness, justice, and praise to God. Third Isaiah has not forgotten the past in their vision of something new. Indeed, the prophet pulls from Israel's history in order to highlight the enduring aspects of the Lord's character that will inform this hopeful vision. Even ideas that were literally set in stone in the law are able to be reinterpreted as circumstances change. Third Isaiah offers us a vision of what it means to update our belief systems, faith statements, and ways of being that in ways that center the most vulnerable, those people in whom the Lord takes special interest, to proclaim good news for the oppressed. So as we enter into communion and as you go this week, Consider how the good news that you proclaim will be received by those who are brokenhearted, by the captives and the prisoner, by those who are oppressed.